A reading from the book of Job, chapter 40, verses 1 through 9. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? This is the word of God. All right. Thank you once again, Mary, for reading God's word to us. Thank you, Che and Alex, for leading us in prayer. And thank you, brothers and sisters, for the, the ways that you've been serving this church already and the ways that you're going to be serving these, this church over the next for the deacons. They just reconfirmed. They just re-upped for another three years. Robert, he just signed up for the rest of his life. So in the mid-13th century, a man by the name of King Alfonso X, ruled over the kingdoms that are now known as Spain. And King Alfonso was, he was a poet. He had a passion for, for learning and for astronomy and music and languages. And because of all that, he earned the nickname Alfonso el Sabio, which means Alfonso the wise or, or the learned. This man is quoted as once saying, if I had been present at creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. At another time, he said, if the Lord Almighty had consulted me before embarking on creation, I should have recommended something simpler, he said. And he's probably not the first or the last person to think that he could run the universe better than God can. Perhaps we've all felt that way at some point or another. If not about the whole universe, at least about our own little corners of the universe, at least about our own lives. Have you ever asked, God, why did you do this? This is not the way I would have done it, Lord. If God had consulted you ahead of time about his plans for this past year, perhaps you would have recommended some changes to that plan. As we've been reading the story of Job, I, I wonder if you've thought to yourself, why in the world did God do this in Job's life? After all, this is a man that God speaks so highly of. He's a man that the Bible describes as blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job was the greatest of all the people of the East, Job 1.3 says. But in one single day, he lost all seven of his children and his fortune, and his life was turned upside down. And then the very next day, he contracted a grotesque disease. His condition was so awful that even his wife thought that he'd be better off dead. You know how Job responded to all that? He grieved and he worshiped. 
He grieved, and somehow he worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has now taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job knew that behind all of what he had experienced was the God of the universe. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord took away. He knew that behind all of his experiences, there was a God who governs his creation actively, sovereignly, and Job continued to worship him. He never cursed God, not once. But we can't really paint him as a perfect man. He wasn't a perfect man, and he knew that. But he also knew, he was certain of the fact that his suffering could not have been punishment. He knew that it wasn't retribution for his sins. That's what his friends thought was going on. They thought that Job had brought all this suffering upon himself because of his secret failures and evil deeds and thoughts and his sins. His three friends, these guys, Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad, they all firmly believed in what we've been calling up to this point the retribution principle, which means simply that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. That's the retribution principle. If you live right, God will reward you with comfort and prosperity in this life. And if you live badly, God's going to repay you with pain and loss in this life. It's that simple. And that's the lens through which Job's friends saw the world. As we saw last week, it's a lens through which many of us sometimes look at the world and look at our own lives. Job rejected that retribution principle, wisely rejected it. So for 30 plus chapters, these friends accuse Job of hiding some kind of evil. And, And Job keeps defending his integrity He knows that he's not hiding anything from God. He knows he's a sinner, he's flawed, and he's guilty, just like the rest of us. But he also knows that, that, as the ancient rabbis would say, that his inside was the same as his outside. He knew that he was an authentic, sincere worshiper of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He knew he wasn't a hypocrite. He knew he wasn't just posing to be holy so that he could get stuff from God. Job didn't understand why he was suffering, but he knew that the retribution principle wasn't it. He rejected it as false and inadequate to explain his experiences. And and what he did over the course of days and weeks and perhaps even months is he defended himself against his friend's lies. He defended himself against their, their reductionistic answers. And he clung to what he knew was true. He didn't cling perfectly, but he kept clinging. Along the way, Job said some things that eventually he would come to regret. Things that at the end of the book he says, I repent of. Along the way, Job challenged God's justice. He challenged God's ways. He said things like this in in chapter 23, verse 3. Listen to what Job says. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. He's talking about God that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him, and I would fill my mouth with arguments. I would know he would answer me, 
and understand what he would say to me? Would God contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. And there an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. These are bold words that Job is speaking. And I don't know. I mean, we could argue about, is, is what he's saying sinful? Is it wrong? I don't know. He's, he seems to be challenging God's justice, but you might also say he's, he's affirming God's justice. He, even as he challenges God's ways and the ways that God has dealt with them, it seems like he's affirming God's justice because he's saying, if God would just listen to me, he would he'd acquit me forever. In any case, Job, for the most part, he asks lots of questions. And he continues to defend his integrity before God. And we don't have time to read it, but if you want to get a sense of what that looked like, read Job 31. Job 31 is a wonderful kind of summation of what Job's attitude was before God. Where he, he tries to lay out what he believes to be true about himself. Before who God, who he sees as a holy judge. In any case, in chapter 32 of Job, uh, another person enters the scene. His name is Elihu. He's young, he's bright, and he's bold. He comes in and he starts rebuking Job, kind of like the other friends did. He says to Job, why do you condemn, or no, not condemn. He says, why do you contend with God? Why are you arguing with God? He defends God's uh, justice and his holiness. And, and what he does is he even calls Job's words empty talk. He says, Job, you're full of, of words without knowledge. And that's a phrase that God is going to use about Job later on in this story as well. In any case, again, we don't have time to look at Elihu's speech. Because what we need to do today as we wrap up this series in Job is we need to jump all the way ahead to the climax of this whole narrative. When, when out of a whirlwind, that, that is a literal storm, and out of the, the whirlwind of Job's suffering, finally God speaks. Enough of all these other people speaking. God says, I have a word to share. And the creator his voice emerges from the seeming chaos of that violent storm. His words are for his servant Job. What God says in these final chapters of Job is it's awe-inspiring. It, it, it can rattle us. It's also puzzling, though, too. Because God does not provide the kinds of answers that Job wants. Or that we might want. God doesn't explain Job's suffering or its causes. He doesn't say, Job, here's what I was doing all along, Job. Here's why all this happened to you. But what God does do is this. He gives Job answers to even deeper questions. What he gives Job speaks to deeper questions than even the ones that Job was wrestling with. And this experience with God, it affects Job so profoundly, it changes him completely so that he sees everything differently. He sees himself and his circumstances and even God differently after this. At first, there's no doubt that God's words rattle him as they would any of us. 
If in the midst of pain and suffering, when, when, when you know you've been spouting off some things to God that maybe, maybe you regret, and then God shows up in a storm. Yeah, Job is rattled when God at first calls him out. But in the end, what God says actually stabilizes Job. It roots and anchors him, strengthens him. Now remember, we said this before, Job wanted to speak to God. He's saying, I want an appointment. I would lay my case before him and he would acquit me. I would fill my mouth with arguments, he said, if I could just get some time with God face to face. But here God is, he shows up. <laughs> and here Job is before his presence. And it is not at all what he expected. He barely gets a word out, frankly. And God, in fact, changes the conversation. It's kind of like what Jesus Christ would often do when he was questioned and confronted by people in the streets. He wouldn't provide the answers that people wanted. In fact, often he himself would begin to ask questions, wouldn't he? And that's what God does here. He begins to ask questions, and they leave Job speechless. But even, Job, even though Job doesn't walk away with, with clarity uh, on the causes of his suffering, he doesn't walk away saying, oh, I get it all now. What he does walk away with is clarity on the character of God. He walks away from this experience with a newfound intimacy with God. A closer relational knowledge of God. You see, what Job experiences here doesn't scare him away from God, although we, we could see how it might be scary. It actually draws him in. So that he experienced deeper intimacy with, he now knows God better, not just in terms of facts, but in terms of experiential relational knowledge. You see, Job didn't get what he was asking for, but he got what he was longing for and didn't even realize. He got what he really needed. And at the end of all of this, here's what Job says in chapter 42, verse 5. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He's not laying out his arguments before God. He's not laying out his defense. He's saying, God, I had heard about you. I thought I knew you. I'd heard about you with my ears, but now my eyes finally sees you. And that doesn't mean that he saw God physically, because all we know from this passage is that, from this section, is that, that a voice emerged from that whirlwind. Kind of like what, or very much like what Moses experienced at Mount Sinai. The clouds and the flashing lightning and, and the thunder and the rain. It was a, a multi-sensory experience. This storm, but the storm was not God. The voice of God simply emerged from inside of that whirlwind. And it confronts Job so powerfully that he can only describe it as the difference between knowing about something and now knowing. It's the difference between hearing about and actually experiencing. 
This is a man who now knows Yahweh, Jehovah, more intimately than he ever has. And it transforms him. And frankly, this is what we all need, isn't it? Whether we are in the midst of suffering or we are in the midst of a season of peace and joy, we may think there are lots of things that we need, but what do any of us need more than this? A deeper, more intimate knowledge of who God is. A deeper experience of relationship with him. It's what we all need. So what does God do and say in order to to give Job what he needs? What does he say? And why does he say it? There's really no outline today, no point. We're just going to look at what God says and kind of think about why he says it. I'm going to invite you to to open up to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. You're going to want to look at these words. Again, God has a lot to say in here. As we did last week, we're just looking at small sections of it, really just the sampling. But in Job 38, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now, the Lord may have been referring to everyone who was there at that point. He may have been speaking to Job and his friends, including Elihu. He may have been talking to Job's wife, for all we know. He could have been talking to everyone there, but we know at the very least this. We know that he's calling out Job specifically for, for speaking words without knowledge. He's not the only one who spoke words without knowledge. But certainly God's calling him out. It's enough to make your your knees shake as you read this. He's saying, come on, Job. Dress for action. Uh, Put put your big boy pants on. And and I'm going to question you. And you tell me what you know. And so these questions begin, and there's lots of them. And they begin at the very beginning. God says, come with me. Let's go back to the very origin of everything, to the very moments where all that you know to be real came into existence. Let's go back to creation. Verse 4 of Job 38. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Just had to put that in, right? Like, surely you know. Come on. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. He's saying, where were you, Job, when all this happened? The the angelic beings, that's what it means usually when the Old Testament talks about the sons of God. These angelic beings were celebrating. The stars themselves were celebrating. How about you, Job? I have a feeling that King Alfonso of Spain 
never read Job 38, because I think if you read Job 38, he wouldn't have said the things that he said about creation. And so God says, Job, you've taken issue with my designs, with, with my governing of the world. You clearly have advice for me, Job, so please share it. Not a word from Job. He doesn't say a thing. Verse 8, God goes on. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? He's talking about the raging sea as if it were a baby that, that came, uh, that was birthed, came into this world, and, and God just handled that baby and wrapped it up and, and quieted it down. Where were you, Job, when I did all this? Verse 10, and, and God prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. He set boundaries around this, this little infant, this baby, as he describes the raging sea, and says, No, 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 you can't get into those cabinets. You, you can't go down those stairs. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you right in here. Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Why is God saying all this? First of all, we have to come to terms with, with this. God is speaking very bluntly and very forcefully with Job. Perhaps it makes us uncomfortable. Like, this is not the way I'm used to hearing God speak. God the Father? He... he I'm not used to hearing him speak with this kind of rebuke. This harshness. And so we need to address that. Last week, criticized, I criticized Job's friends because of their harsh words, their insensitivity towards Job. But here's what we need to recognize today. It's a very, it's a very basic, obvious point. We need to recognize that this is Job's creator speaking. Not his friends. God knows exactly what Job is experiencing. He doesn't speak from ignorance or from privilege the way that Job's friends did. Everything that God says is timely and true, not only here but always, and that's not so for Job's friends, is it? Or for us. Yahweh never needs to second-guess his words. He never needs to hold his tongue or go back and say, well, well, I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. I said that. The words that come out of his mouth are sure and true and right. We need to second-guess our words and, and, and sometimes more than just second-guess them. James 3.2 says, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. That describes none of us. <laughs> but it does describe God. Perfect in what he says. He does not stumble in his words. God, not only that, but here's another reason why God can speak to Job this way. While Job's friends could not. Because God was willing to take on suffering for Job. God wasn't just present there to observe Job's suffering and offer solutions. No, God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, walked into the storm of human suffering, into the storm of Job's suffering, 
with him, and for him. This is what the gospel teaches us. That God does not rescue us from afar. He enters in the person of Jesus Christ. He takes on flesh and he walks into the suffering. He understands it better than we do, not just because he's on the outside looking in, but he's been on the inside looking out as well. Jesus experienced the whirlwind of human suffering for all the years of his life. And then he experienced the whirlwind that was the the judgment that, that he absorbed on the cross. And from the midst of that whirlwind of judgment and suffering that he was experiencing, what did he speak? Harsh words? Brutal words? No, what did he speak? From the whirlwind of the cross, he spoke, it's finished. For you, it's finished. Father, into your arms, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He is God and we are not. And so that needs to shape the way that we understand why God speaks the way he does here. And it also needs to shape the way that we speak. Because I have noticed that some Christians, and and, and I would include myself in that in some instances, some Christians point to the, the, the way that God speaks sometimes when he speaks harshly. And they use that to justify their own harsh words. Have you ever experienced this? Perhaps have you ever done this? Christians point to things that Jesus said, his, his, his more piercing words. He said, Well, he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. That's offensive. Those are hurtful words. Jesus spoke like that. That's why I get to spout off at you. John the Baptist called the Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers. Or sometimes maybe Christians will point to the way that the Apostle Paul speaks about false teachers. He calls them dogs. I wish they would mutilate themselves, he says in Galatians. These are offensive words. And we could easily look at that and unwisely say, well, that justifies my own harsh speech. I'm just calling you out. I'm being Christ-like. It's helpful for us to, to, I, to, to come to terms with this very simple fact that in the Bible, description does not equal prescription. Just because something is described in the Bible doesn't mean it's prescribed for us to follow in suit. Just because, I'm going to put it the way that, that one pastor, Richard Velotas, put it. I, I appreciate this. He said, just because God records it doesn't mean he always recommends it for us. Just because God records it doesn't mean he always recommends it for us. And so if you find yourself justifying yourself with these examples, well, John said harsh things, and Jesus said harsh things, You're looking at descriptions of what Jesus, the sinless son of God, said. You're looking at descriptions of what the apostles and a prophet named John the Baptist said. But I would recommend that if those are the examples of speech that you tend to go to, to rationalize your own communication issues, I would recommend that you look at what God actually does prescribe for us. 
not just describe, but prescribe for us. Second Timothy 2 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Not just kind to, <laughs> not to the people that we agree with, not just kind to the people that vote the way we do or, or hold the same positions and, and ideas that we do, not the people that just worship the same God that we do, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, he says, patiently enduring evil. Patiently, even willing to endure evil. That's prescription. That's command to us about our communication from God. Ephesians 4 says, I urge you to walk with all humility and gentleness. What kind of communication does God call us to? Gentle communication with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to be right, eager to prove yourself correct. No, no, no. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Not eager to convince, not even eager to persuade, but eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And lastly, I'll read one more, 1 Timothy 5. This is, this is uh, the Apostle Paul speaking to a, uh, to a young elder, and he says, Do not rebuke an older man. Don't rebuke but encourage him as you would a father and younger men as brothers. You see, the God who really knows us well, he warns us against spouting off. He, he warns us against pride in our words. Against, he warns us against belligerence and impatience. He is God. We are not. So speak accordingly. Let's, let's move on. Now, beyond the, the tone of everything that, that God says here to Job, we need to ask, why does he say what he says? Why this? After all, Job's looking for answers, right? But instead he gets questions. Why? Well, again, again, we know that this is often what Jesus Christ did when asked questions. And it wasn't just a frustrate, it wasn't deflection, right? It wasn't like the politician who gets asked a question and answers a completely different question. Doesn't that drive you nuts? No, Jesus responded to questions with questions because he knew the deeper longing underneath the question. He, knew, he also knew the heart behind the question. Jesus always knew what someone wanted to hear and what they needed to hear, and he always gave them the latter. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Yahweh does the same thing when he speaks out of this whirlwind to his servant Job. This is not God just trying to intimidate Job or, or, or bully Job into submission. No, it's much more loving and wise than that. One scholar offered this, this helpful insight that um, when, when we are stuck in depression, sunken in depression, sometimes what we need is for our eyes to be lifted up off of ourselves. Because sometimes we get stuck in here, right, in our heads, and we get stuck right here. It's natural. That's one reason why it's often so helpful to, to get outside <laughs> under the sky, 
experience the ocean, the mountains. Play with your kids if you got kids. To, to hear a sound other than the, the, the fan in your laptop or the air conditioner clicking on and off. To get outside and, and sense other realities because what it does is it reminds us that there is a world outside of our thoughts and outside of our feelings. There is a whole world out there outside of my sadness. And that means that there is a God who made and sustains all of that. Job needed to be awakened to all of this. He needed it so badly that, that God doesn't just say, Let, let's go for a walk. Go look at the mountains. No, he says, I'm going to take you all the way back to creation. Job needed this. He needed this tour of, of creation to, to help get his eyes off of himself. It provides him with this fresh perspective. Fresh perspective. But it's also a really humbling perspective. Because what Job realized is what we often need to realize is that we are much smaller than we initially think. We are not at the center of the universe, as we might imagine ourselves to be. We naturally tend to see ourselves as, as maybe the, the center of our universe, as the, the, the star in, in our movie. God's words have a humbling effect on Job and make him realize that he's smaller than humans seem to think we are. I recently heard an interview with a, a NASA astronaut named Jessica Meir, and Jessica Meir described how she, she's, she's made multiple trips into space, and she, she recently um, was describing how seeing our planet from space changed her. It, it gave her a newfound sense of her smallness, she said. And it gave her a newfound sense of the, the relative smallness of even our planet. It's one among many in a giant universe. And she said, that humbled me. And that's something like what's going on here. As God confronts Job with his own limited scope, his own limited experiences, he's confronting Job with everything he doesn't know and wasn't there to see and doesn't understand to the point where this man, who at one point was challenging God's justice, now he's silenced. Mary read it to us earlier in Job 40, verse 4. Behold, Job says, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. I'm done. I'm shutting up. Why? Because you don't care about me, God? No. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm shutting up simply for this reason. What can I answer you? I'm small. I'm small. You see, this newfound perspective that, that Job walks away with, it's, it's refreshing and it's humbling at the same time. But Jessica Meir, she, she missed an opportunity to see something when she was in space. And it's something that we can't miss here as we read these words. That astronaut said that looking out the window of that spacecraft or, or going out on spacewalks at times, which just sounds incredible, she says it, it showed her, listen, 
not only her smallness, but her insignificance, she said. It showed me how insignificant I am and we are and this planet even is. I believe she got that wrong. It's the wrong takeaway. Because when God confronts Job, it is certainly to help him see his own limitations, his own smallness. It is to to help Job recognize also, though, his place in the constant care of God. It's the opposite of insignificance. You see, this newfound perspective that Job walks away with, it's not just refreshing and humbling, but it's also profoundly comforting. Job is not insignificant. Neither is Jessica Weir. Neither are you. Because the God who made this this wild, sprawling, dangerous universe, he also sustains this universe, and he provides for this universe and cares for it, and that includes you. In fact, child of God, that especially includes you. You are cared for and deeply loved and anything but insignificant in the eyes of your creator. The Lord would, would go on in this section to talk to Job about all these beasts that he made, all these animals that he not only created, but he also cares for. I'll give you just some examples. He he says in, 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 in chapter 38, 39, can you, Job, can you hunt the prey for the lion? Imagine Job's like, no, I never even thought of doing that. Verse 41, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help? Again, probably not something that Job gave a lot of thought to. I certainly haven't. Chapter 39, verse 1. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? That's extra random, isn't it? Who in the world knows where the mountain goats give birth? Or when? And in chapter 40, he says, Behold, Job, the behemoth. We don't even know what the behemoth is. Some people think it was a hippopotamus. We we really don't know. It may have been some some prehistoric uh, beast that was dead by the time Job was alive, or it may have been around then and it's extinct now. We don't know. But God says, look at the behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox, God says. It all seems so random, but it's not random at all, because you know what God is saying here? Jesus would put it this way. Jesus would connect the dots for us. When he says in Matthew 6, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet our heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Yes, you are small. 
And if you don't think you're small, you don't need to, to, to launch in, it on, uh, you know, you don't need to take a SpaceX trip into the atmosphere to find out how small you are. You just need to look at God's words and listen to what he says to you, and you will be confronted with your smallness. Yes, but you are not lost in the sprawling complexity of this universe. You are not insignificant, regardless of how few followers and likes you have on Instagram or how few people invite you to their functions or how few people reach out to you or even know your name. You are not insignificant. Although it can feel that way. Because life on this earth can feel so alone. And that loneliness only amplifies when suffering hits, doesn't it? As you start to feel alone and more alone in your pain, and others seem to be pulling away from you, maybe they are. And perhaps you also feel yourself pulling away from others because of the pain of sickness, joblessness, or depression, abuse, infertility, betrayal. It leaves us feeling isolated, and it leaves us feeling uncared for. That's where Job was. But he was never, ever alone. The God who was present when he laid the foundations of the earth was present with Job all the time. He was never alone, and neither are you ever alone. And when, when, when God finally speaks in Job 38, it's interesting. It's the very first time since the very beginning of the book that God is called by the name Yahweh. Or the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. All throughout the book of Job, it's other names that are used for him. Names that point to his deity, he is God. But it's never Yahweh until the very, from the, in the very beginning it's Yahweh, when we see that scene in heaven, and then it's Yahweh at the end. And here's why that matters. Because that very name that he uses here, it tells us that God is not just creator, he is not just the almighty, sovereign judge and king of the universe that he made. He is also the God who enters into a relationship, who loves being in relationship with us. He's the God who binds himself with a promise to always love and care and provide for every single person who is joined to him through faith in Jesus Christ. Yahweh is his covenant name, and every time he uses it, he's reminding us that we are in covenant with him through faith in Jesus. From the greatest of all the people of the East to the smallest of all the people in New York or Nebraska or Namibia, God has promised to stay in relationship with us and to care and provide for us. And he's proven it. He proved it on the cross. 
And he was willing even to experience pain of judgment for us. It's true, you know, God's words to, to Job are puzzling, there's no doubt. This is not what we would have expected necessarily, and it's certainly not what Job expected this conversation with God to go like, but actually what he gives Job is better than we would have expected. He, he shows him and he shows us our smallness, our limitations, but he also shows us our, the, our place in God's affections and in his care. Given our tendencies, because we all, I think, have a little bit of King Alfonso in us, we're likely to read the end of Job and say, you know, the Lord could have really spoken more lovingly to Job. You know, the Lord could have, he could have handled this a little bit differently. He could have, there's no doubt. And elsewhere in the scriptures, he does speak very differently, doesn't he? Praise him for that. But in this moment, God chose to display his love in a surprising way. He, he, he wants to confront Job with his own otherness. His, his, his identity as creator, as unlike the humans that he has made. He reminds us that he stands outside of time and space while we stand inside of it. And so because we live inside of time and space, we lack the capacity to fully understand his ways. Like I said in week one, I said, you, you can't teach a dog to do algebra. And in the same way, a human cannot fully understand the judgments and choices of God. It requires a wisdom that is inaccessible to us. And yet, by pointing Job to creation and, and taking him through that tour of, of the history of creation, God is saying, look at my love, Job. Because the fact is that creation itself is not just the display of God's power. Creation itself is a display of God's love, gratuitous, overflowing love. God did not have to make the earth or the behemoth or the mountain goat. The fact that he did is not just an expression of his power and of his creativity. It's an expression of his love. He created all this and said, look. Look at all this. An overflow of the love that existed between the Father and the Son and the Spirit eternally. He lays it all out for us, shares creation with us, and even the angelic beings can't help but celebrate it because they see all the love and the power in it. So, as we've walked through Job, and we close this book, we said that one aim that we had all, all along was to, um, to collect essential gear that we would need in order to face trials in our lives and the lives of others. We, we need to learn how to suffer from Job. And I hope that we've done some of that as we walk through early on, chapter 1. We learned that, that when we suffer, we need to grieve before God. Grieve and worship. In chapter 2, we learned that we need to grieve in community with others. We need to invite other people to experience our pain, even when they don't do a very good job of it. In chapter 3, we learn that we don't need to censor ourselves before God. We can, we can come before God with our emotions in their rawest state and lament before him. He won't reject us. 
And then later on in Job 19 on Easter, we learned about how the promise of the resurrection equips us to face suffering. We learned last week about how we need to avoid simplistic solutions. We need to cling to what we know and reject lies in the midst of suffering. And now, as we come to the very end, I believe that what God wants to show us here is in order to face suffering, there's one final thing we need to do. After all else is done, we need to be silent and trust. This is what Job shows us. He shows us that there's a time for lament. There's a time for questions. There's a time for crying out. There's a time for for rejecting lies. But there's also a time for silent trust. The, The submission that manifests itself through quiet and trusting of our lives to him. This is where Job ends up. He silently entrusts himself to God. And it's not because he's so intimidated. It's because he sees that this is a covenant God. This is the God who not only has created me, but he has welcomed his people in like a husband receives his bride. He he is a covenant God who, who sees me as a child, a son, to him the father. He's a husband. He's a father. He's a covenant God. And because of all that, I can trust myself to him. At the beginning of the series, I asked, if God were to take it all away, all you have, would he still deserve your worship? Would you still entrust yourself to him if he takes and he takes and he takes it all away from you? We still worship him. The book of Job leaves us to, to, to ask that question of ourselves, but it also leaves us with this vision of who God is and why he's worthy of our worship, no matter what. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this narrative that confounds us in so many ways, and yet there's so much truth there that we we need a lifetime to absorb and absorb and absorb. Thank you for feeding us from Job. More than anything, Lord, we desire that you would give us what you gave Job, a refreshed, humbling, comforting awareness of you. A deeper relational intimacy with you. Lord, we have heard so much about you. Would you show us more of who you are? Amen.